In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And we are back with Army veteran, speculative fiction writer, Sean Patrick Hazlitt, the editor of uh, two anthologies, Weird World War III, Haunted Cold War Visions, and the latest is Weird World War Four uh, published? The publisher is Bain. That's B A E N. And um, there's a quote in the book. It's a, a very famous uh, quote by Albert Einstein. He was asked, uh, you know, about World War Three, and he said something like, "I, I don't know how World War Three will be fought, but World War Four would be fought with rocks." You know, in other words, it's World War Three is going to be apocalyptic. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, the great Canadian communications and cultural uh, theorist, he predicted back in 1970, I think it was, that World War III, uh, he called it an, a guerrilla information war, and there would be no division between military and civilian participation. Uh, it would be, get this, again, this is 1970, he predicted it would be a war waged in cyberspace not on a defined battlefield. What do you think of that prediction? I think we're living it right now. In fact, it's funny you mentioned that, Richard. There is a book out in the market by one of my former classmates called The New Rules of War, and his name is Sean McFate. And what, he's, what he theorized was the days of nation states where there's a clear switch between a condition of war and a condition of peace have long since ended. And that Russia and China in particular are much better geared and playing that game in a much more sophisticated way than the United States is. So, you know, as an example, we can look at the gray zone uh, warfare that China engages in in the South China Sea. And to give to paint that picture is what the Chinese are able to do is they're able to 
offer a provocation just to the edge of what a Western Western society would consider overt warfare and then stop. So using that sort of strategy, they've been able to fill the South China Sea with bases in international waters where they should have no territory and should not be participating in. In the same manner, Putin, if you look at the, mo- you know, the most recent invasion of Ukraine, his goal, uh, uh, you know, which appears just from you know, watching how the initial days of the invasion, it seems or appears as if he had intended to use this sort of gray zone warfare to orchestrate a collapse of the Ukrainian government and then easily take control. And you can tell that because he didn't include enough forces to be able to subdue the entire country. And he was informed by his intelligence agencies, which were feeding him information that frankly wasn't true. And he got caught in his own trap in terms of trying to prosecute these sort of gray zone military engagements. The, The seizure of Crimea is a perfect example of that. And then you can also look at the sanctions that the U.S. government used against the Russians, where Putin orchestrated military action, and then we cobbled his economy and put asset freezes on his you know, military, or you know, on military officials and oligarchs, and we're seizing yachts, etc. But to your point, this is something that is crossing all spectrums of the you know the will of a civil population to fight. So you have cyber, you have military, you have economic, and then you just have kind of culture, the cultural will to fight. And you're seeing if Ukrainians are doing a masterful job of using information war to you know portray a side that on paper did not look like it could stand up to this Russian colossus. But they are. But at the same time, you know, all of us are not immune to various forms of propaganda. So remember the ghost of Kiev, right? The the fighter ace that was yes. shooting down aircraft, right? That didn't exist. So you know, part of it is just or the thir- the thirteen out. soldiers on Snake Island that supposedly told this Russian vessel, you know, when they when they told them to surrender, they gave them the middle finger. And they were then supposedly destroyed, now celebrated as heroes. That never happened either. Yeah, and the, and the other thing that they do that is, and you don't know if it's true, but every time they kill a Russian general or they foil an attempt to assassinate Zelensky, they always say that someone in the FSB leaked the information or provided the warning, etc. Now, is that true? It might be. But even if it's not true, it is very useful in getting inside Putin's head, causing paranoia, doing all sorts of crazy things so that he starts unraveling his own infrastructure and people start pointing fingers and make it difficult to prosecute a war. And right now, it's not even clear who is in charge of the military operation. It seems as if Russian troops in everywhere but Mariupol have gone to ground. Not only that, you know, unless, unless the news came out in the last day or two, no one's seen uh, the, the defense minister Shoigu in like you know, two weeks. 
So there's a there's a lot of that going on. And when and when asked, the Russians will say he's too busy, he's having heart problems. So there's there's a lot of interesting you know things going on. There, there's the jamming, you know, radio communications. The Russians are talking in the clear, which is unheard of for the U.S. military. Like that just does not happen. In fact, when I used to fight like the Russians, I had to deal with jammers because when I first started at the National Training Center, we didn't have, as part of the, you know, the enemy force, we didn't have encrypted communications. So we had codes where we would jump to new radio nets. The Russians aren't even doing that. And one general in particular was killed because he was on an open source uh, communications net and it was, was discovered and killed. Not only that, there are people outside of the primary combatants who are, getting, who are engaging in the conflict. So you have anonymous, you know, writing or using cyber cyber warfare to take down Russian websites, et cetera. And you know, who knows if they're affiliated, not affiliated? It's very murky and very unclear. And this is what this gray zone warfare is, you know, looks like in in practice. And even on these communication sites, as was a New York Times report yesterday where they showed some of these encrypted communications. There are jammers, there are ham radio operators who are listening in on Russian communications. On one of those communications, there was somebody who was literally, literally whistling Dixie. And it's like, is that the U.S.? Is that just a um, ham radio operator in the South? Who knows? And that's, and that's what it is. You can't put your finger on who's doing what. And that's what makes it you know, kind of the future of warfare, but it also makes it something that has the potential to be much more escalatory, right? Right, right. Something is attributed to your side, and you didn't do it. There's really, you know, it's very hard to prove that you didn't. So it's it's the thing the Russians are doing with chemical weapons, right? It's 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 part of their doctrine and strategy. When I trained U.S. forces, we used chemical weapons against U.S. forces. Now it was CF gas, and it was you know, harmless, stuff like that, just forced them to go through a training event. But the Russians are, you know, that's what they use. And they, 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 Putin obviously wants to achieve some sort of a breakthrough. And if he uses them, he could kind of push ahead. The problem is, what's our response going to be? And I know that we haven't said it publicly, but, and I think the administration did a good job of, you know, it seems as though, according to what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has said, in public that the administration did communicate something in private to the Russians to kind of give them a hint of what would happen if they were to escalate the conflict in that manner. Now, what is it? You know, who knows? But I think that's an appropriate thing to do because you don't want to make it public and you don't want to you know, make it a question of prestige and, and you know, a tit for tat and you know, put Putin in a, in a position where his back is against the wall. But you also want him to know what very likely could happen if he crosses that red line. Right. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so uh, just getting back to McLuhan for a moment and this guerrilla information war, and you were talking about the participation of non-combatants in this war, cyber warfare and hacking and so forth. So again, no division between military and civilian participation. And there are countries now that are sort of aligned, uh, China with Russia, perhaps Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia refused to sort of condemn. I think the United Arab Emirates, India has, has sort of been walking this fine line. Is it possible that we're already in World War III, but we don't know it because it's not being con- it's not being fought with uh, along conventional terms? Much of it is is in cyberspace. I yeah, I I think it is certainly possible. And it all depends on how you define it and what's really going on. And there's things that we're not going to have access to. But let me let me give you a few examples of, of whether we, we you know we, we might be in something like this. I, you know, one of the examples is, is very early in the war, the United States offered to evacuate Zelensky from Ukraine. Now, in order to do that rapidly, the units that would typically handle that sort of a mission would be your Tier 1 operators. And by Tier 1, I mean elements of Delta Force and or uh, SEAL Team 6. So to think that, you know, those, and they, and they typically uh, prosecute black ops. To, you know, I'm not saying that they're in-country or that they're, they're operating there, but it's certainly possible because those are, your plausible, deniable units. 
So if you know one or two were captured or died, the thing the U.S. government would likely say is, well, they they were part of the Ukrainian International Legion. We don't we don't know anything about them, and they know that when they sign up for those sorts of things. Uh, I would be shocked if the you know certain units of the CIA, when it comes to kind of intercepting communication transcripts and you know things like that, were not somehow involved. Um, it is open knowledge in the media that the U.S. is actively sharing, or it has been said in the media, I, I don't know if anybody's confirmed it, but is sharing um, you know, tactical, operational and tactical data with the Ukrainians. So in other words, if there's a you know, tank company that they observe from satellites in space, they try to share that information with the Ukrainians in as much you know, real time as possible. And here's the other thing, too. Um, there's also when 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 soldiers upload things onto social media, they can be geolocated, and then they can be cross-referenced with other things that are that are put on social media. In that same New York Times report, you can see journalists doing it. You know, it's absolutely impressive that they're able to. You know, they'd say there 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 was a, a quote about an MTLB, which is a tracked vehicle, being abandoned, and then they would show a video of that MTLB, this is where the location was, this is where the transmitters were on the Russian side, and the reason they're able to do all that is that the Russians are, for whatever reason, communicating in the clear. But going back to your original question, Richard, I don't want to get too far away from it. Um, there is a chance, I mean, Putin himself said that the economic sanctions, he considered them an act of war. So, you know, would he choose to escalate? I don't know. And the other thing, too, is the fact that we haven't seen a large-scale cyber attack is, means that I think both sides at this point in time are acting rationally. I think, you know, if I were in this administration, I would, as soon as possible, communicate very clearly what the sorts of or the range or menu of escalatory steps that would follow an attack on, say, a power grid, for instance. Right. So let's say the Russians were able to take out, the, you know, the three North American power grids that we have. That would be borderline existential for us and could result in a very quick and rapidly escalated hot war. Right. I'm not saying that's the case, but that could be one of the things that we communicate because we're still uh, until a few days ago, my, is my understanding, we were still communicating with the Russians. And I think they've they've since shut down that communication. And this is a time when we should actually be talking more with them so that we can calibrate this thing not getting out of control. But I would be surprised if there was not some, you know, you know, there's some scrapes back and forth, and it certainly does have the potential to escalate. For instance, we now have, for the first time since 2005, 100,000 troops in Europe, and we're continuing to reinforce them, I think, and we're pushing them forward into Romania in Poland. So this is the, you know, and then obviously in the three Baltic states. Uh, and additionally, right, you have the, the Finns and the Swedes, um, more likely the Finns, actively considering, you know, who have traditionally been neutral, but they also have a shared history with the Soviet Union, right, where the Winter War and, and everything that ensued from there. So there's, there's certainly a chance for this thing to sort of escalate. It seems, at least on the Chinese side, that They've kind of stepped back a little bit. I think their impression from uh, Putin's original communication was that this thing was going to be fast. 
it's not going to be fast. And the other thing that's concerning is if this thing continues to, ex to expand or you know, to continue throughout the planning season, you're going to have even more unrest in places that are receivers of Ukrainian, both Ukrainian and Russian grain. So right. See star, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Exactly. And you're already seeing, yeah. you're already seeing some starvation in Afghanistan just because the Taliban took over and they're not very good at running a government. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.